Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. One of the greatest abilities that humans possess is adaptability. And I'm a firm believer that the most important part of hitting is if a player can be on time consistently and if they can adapt their body with the incoming pitch. These are two skills that are undertaught with mechanics being the focus on most practices or hitting sessions. Mechanics are very important and if we have more efficient mechanics, we will have a better chance of seeing the ball, being on time, and having the ability to adjust. We also need to keep this in mind that changing any motor pattern, especially during the season, is really hard. We probably won't have the time to help a player make huge swing overhauls, but if the goal of the season is to be their best in games, and it should be, timing and adjustability has to be at the forefront of our mind at all times. Here is Creating Problem Solvers in the Box, Part 2, Training Adjustable Hitters. After all that and I start with setup, well, before we can do anything as a hitter, we need to be in a good setup. This includes starting from a position that we can see the pitcher and the incoming ball, and that we can easily make moves from. It's really hard to be on time consistently if you are fighting your body's moves and if you can't see the pitch well. Starting with a good setup and landing in a balanced athletic position can help us immensely with our body's ability to adjust. A couple of things that I look for in a setup. Are they relaxed? If they're not, have them take a deep breath and relax their muscles. Also, can they see the pitcher with both eyes without straining? They may not be able to move their neck enough to see the pitcher with both eyes and not strain to do it if their shoulders are pointing toward the right fielder. This excludes Beau Bichette, who must have unreal neck mobility. This could also be a neck or upper spine mobility issue, and it's hard to see the ball well with any neck or trap tightness. And it's really hard to hit if we can't see the ball well. Let me give you a few examples. Let's use Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos, and Javier Baez. Three familiar faces, but also three of the highest swing and miss totals in Major League Baseball. I've included a picture in the article that shows where their shoulders and head are from setup to forward move. So does their setup hinder them from seeing the ball? Maybe. I haven't spoken with them or anyone in their organization. This is just an observation. So let's take three other guys that were in the top five of least swing and miss rate this past season. David Fletcher, Michael Brantley, and Alex Bregman. And I've included a picture of them in the article that shows their setup to forward move. To me, it looks much cleaner. There's an easier path to see the ball. But we also need to take into account that both groups are phenomenal, established big leaguers. And this is probably one of the many things that both groups do differently but it is also something for us to be conscious of as well. Just for fun, Group 1, which included Harper, Castellanos, and Baez, swung and missed 1,205 times this past season. Well, what about Group 2? They missed a total of 344 times in and out of the zone. What about weighted runs created plus? Group 1 had an average of 120 weighted runs created plus, and Group 2, 133. And I will say that Fletcher was at 99, so the lowest of both groups. This is why we spent the first six weeks on learning to move better before we started to blend in pitch velocity. So, specifically, what are some ways to train this in a practice setting? Well, let's start with decision-making in practice. Hitting is a decision. And ideally, we want them to make one decision. No. If we are teaching the yes-yes mentality, 
then we are going to promote more aggressiveness at the plate. We all have players who want to read and react each pitch, and then they get blown up by velocity because of indecisiveness. Step one would be to make sure they understand that they are swinging until the ball or their posture tells them not to. And step two would be to have them make this decision repeatedly during practice and doing it in as specific of context as possible. One of the most popular forms of batting practice is mixed BP. A coach mixes pitches to give a hitter a better representation of what they will see in a game versus throwing traditional BP. Some of our favorite rounds, including mixed BP, would be two-seam versus four-seam. This one is really tough, but it does help them to pick up the difference in spin and shape. I teach it by showing them what a two-seam looks like slowly coming off my fingers. Then I show what a four-seam looks like the same way. They'll see much more of a solid color and tighter shape with a four-seam and more of a wobble with the two-seam. The way I've taught it is that if you see more red, that equals a four-seam, and more white is a two-seam. But after having a conversation with a successful local hitting coach, he teaches the opposite. So, just be aware of the perception of the players and how they are interpreting it. No matter what color they see more of, they should be able to tell the difference with reps. So a typical round would be hit the four-seam and take the two-seam, or the opposite. Within a similar concept, we do fastball and curveball BP. But I always mention to look for the pop out of the hand, which can be a tell if a pitcher is throwing a curveball. For the first few rounds or times that we do this, I try and make it as obvious as I can. And then I'll start to tighten it up the longer we do it. A typical round would be hit fastball, lay off curveball. Or, if you hit the curveball really hard, I'm fine with that if that's the end result. When a pitcher tunnels well, it's really hard to tell the difference, but it's something that we can always look for as a tell. One cue that has stuck out to the players during these rounds that I use is, if you see a funky spin, then just spit on it. Meaning, they see what the fastball spin is doing, and if they see something different, take. This is especially true when they're ahead in the count. We can also do fastball and slider BP, and it's very similar to the above, but instead of looking for the pop out of the hand, you're looking for the slider red dot. I've included a couple of examples of all of these that I'm talking about in the article, so make sure and go check that out. Another fun round that I do whenever we are challenging these players is telling them I'm throwing one curveball this round. The goal with this is to help them pick up pattern recognition and anticipation. If we throw at the first pitch, then the rest of the time they should be sitting on a fastball. Or, if I wait to throw it until the last pitch, they can sit on it. Now, if they're hitting you hard, the pro move would be to not throw it every now and then to keep them honest. But, be prepared for griping. Another drill we like to do is if we are timing for the pitcher's best fastball, we will have to adjust our body and timing for every other pitch. Essentially, they will have to create a slight delay in their swing to adjust for the time difference and they will have to make postural changes as well. This is why it is vital to land in an athletic and balanced position. So we use the ride drill for players who launch their swing as soon as their front foot hits the dirt. This is also a problem because players who land too stiff and extend their hips early because they can't account for slower timing. So the ride drill is fantastic for players who lack adjustability with their lower half, so have them start in a fooled position, bent front leg, body sunk into the ground, and then have them take swings from there, trying to stay through the ball, not come around it or be way too early. Another one that has been popularized over the last couple of years is overtraining with a fastball. Author of The Rise of Superman, Stephen Kotler, suggests to make training 4% harder than the comfort level. 
there will be days where we want to see what we will see on an average day, which is about 81 miles per hour on the varsity level, having taken these from the flight scope numbers that were provided for us last year. There are also days that we scale it back because most teams struggle to hit with thumbers who pitch backwards. So round one could be game-like takes or swing-throughs, which I talked about last week, and round two, be on time, see the baseball, and find barrels. Another addition to this sort of training is we use tennis balls in the machine. This gives the feedback that we want for overtraining, but without the consistent pounding on your wrists and thumb. But make sure you set it up fairly close. Tennis balls don't travel very well. And I'm working on a future article about Kotler's work as we speak. Another variation of this we do is called machine with mixed balls. This one is very similar to the above with tennis balls. If you have a machine that's accurate every time, then this one is for you. We have these soft baseballs that are used for some indoor defensive work. They look the same as a regular baseball, but they're extremely light, and the goal is for them to dive and mimic a changeup. Another drill that we use to promote adjustability is using different bat weights and lengths. And there aren't any more drills that promote more adjustability than changing a bat every round and making the player adjust to a different length, size of barrel, or weight. They have to consciously think about the implement that they're using, and this also promotes a great learning opportunity while promoting engagement. Three plate drill. We've seen this one before. Three plates in front of a machine and every couple of swings they move either front to back or back to front. Most do back to front, which is slower to fast, but front to back is really good to adjust to slower speeds, which a lot of our players struggle with. I usually put the plates about two feet apart. For the last two drills that we are going to discuss today, our best representation of what we're going to see in a game is live bullpens and cages. Try and make it as game-like as possible with counts, consequences, and competition. And our final drill is machine work into a screen with a swing. The emphasis on this is to see the ball early and anticipate where the ball is going and track the ball well. This also promotes overtraining with a slightly less stressful environment. And it can also help train better decisions. So what we do is we use a nine square net or you can put a strike zone and a hot zone on a screen and put the screen a few feet in front of the players. Then set up the machine as if they were about to take rounds of BP. Have the machine dialed in to whatever pitch you want and directed into the screen strike zone. Have the players take a realistic dry swing if they think their pitch is in the zone. We can use it as counts BP and they can swing in their hot zone or if we've got two strikes, swing in the strike zone. When you're ahead, we're trying to do damage and swing at a smaller box or zone. And when you're behind or have two strikes, swing at pitches that are going to be called strikes. It takes a little pressure off of the result and puts more on the process of being on time, seeing the ball well, and making good decisions. It's also really good for distinguishing balls and strikes for bottom of the zone sliders. As I've mentioned several times, we can turn anything into a competition. And having swing decision competitions with themselves or with the group is a great way to go about this. I wrote about this in Data Driven Part 1, In-Game Data. And so, do we know what they are hitting well? And how often are we swinging in that zone? Using both of these, we can set up BP rounds that curtail to the specific player, and you get a point for each ball you swing at in those zones. A simple chart with plus or minus for whatever is important to you will suffice. Such as, Fastballs in the middle of the zone, plus one for a swing, and minus for a take. We can also track whether or not they made a good decision based on the count. For damage counts, 0-0, 1-0, 2-0, 3-1, 3-0, 
We don't want them to be swinging at pitchers' pitches on the black. I have gotten frustrated with our players' inability to master this, but if we aren't training it, I can expect them to master it. For our final thoughts today, let's talk about mentality. When our thinking is clear, we're able to make better decisions. I talk about this in psychology a lot with Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a great book, but it's very heavy, and in an effort to simplify, our brain works in two systems, aptly named System 1 and System 2. System 1 is our ability to react and make quick decisions. System 2 is our logical thinking and creative process, but it takes a long time and is not very efficient. A majority of time in sports is spent in System 1, which relies heavily on past experiences and the ability to make quick decisions based on information given. The more we can recreate game conditions in practice and more repetitions we can give to our players, the more efficient our System 1 will work. The more we have to think and rethink in games, the more System 2 will be doing a bulk of the work and it can lead to overthinking and sometimes slumps. Therefore, we need to clear up their thinking as much as we can to allow them to flow in games. And the final thing I want to discuss is allowing stress in practice. They'll be put through varying levels of stress and working in and out of stress during games. A great way to do this is raising their heart rate and then working to slow it down before they hit, such as do five burpees and then hit. The goal of this is to work on controlling their breath. I include this because when our heart rate gets up, it can affect our vision and our ability to make the best decision. I have included a video from Ian Kinsler, Brian Holiday, and Daniel Norris talking about their ability to adapt and think under stress. I also want to include this. Listeners, understand that all of this can be situational too. If we're playing five days a week or 150 games a year, have some feel for your team on when to implement this. We have to link everything back to the game. It's what matters most. So the last thing we want to do is have them mentally or physically exhausted during games. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Coaches, your players aren't afraid to work hard. They just can't afford to get it wrong. And that is why you should attend the 2019 Skill Acquisition Summit hosted by Randy Sullivan's Florida Baseball Ranch and the Strength of Skills from the Netherlands. This annual event will take place on October 12th and the 13th in Lakeland, Florida. This event will have a premier panel of presenters, including Franz Bosch from the Netherlands and Rob Gray from Arizona State University. The most forward-thinking coaches in the business will funnel the information down to the bare bones of on-the-field application of leading-edge skill acquisition and motor learning science. You will leave equipped to help your players optimize the return on their training time. For more information, call 1-866-STRIKE-3 or go to floridabaseballranch.com backslash summit. Presenters include Franz Bosch, Rob Gray, Martin Nyhoff, Bart Honegroff, David Mann, Paul Venner, Ron Wolforth, and Coach Randy Sullivan, who will serve as host and moderator for this exciting event. I will be in attendance, and I hope to see you there.